This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category in those episodes. And we finish with a quiz. So let's get into it. We're talking about Monday, February 17 through Friday, February 21 of 2020. So on Monday, February 17, we had the contestants Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tom Ellison, a business manager from Brooklyn, New York, and Terry Hurd Jr., an aircraft maintainer from Akron, Ohio, whose one-day cash winnings total 17,663. And we started off the Jeopardy round with the categories Jackal, Hide, Three-Word Book Titles by Middle Word, Survivor, Beard Man, and Rhyme Fighter. For everyone who's wondering, yes, Mackenzie and I are related because Jones is a very uncommon last name. So I assumed so. Yes. Yeah. Basically, any Jones that you're going to see on Jeopardy, we're related. Yeah. So the Survivor category really messed up the timing of this whole Jeopardy game. Yeah, those were long clues. They were really long. With a category like that, they are going to keep the Jeopardy round going until all of those video clues have been played Mm -hmm. because they will never be able to use them again for some other category. And there's probably some kind of sponsorship deal such that they have to get them played. So the Jeopardy round went very long, I assume. I mean, I wasn't monitoring it with a stopwatch or anything, but those those video clues were quite long. And then five clues in the double Jeopardy round went unplayed because of time. Six clues. Six clues. Was it six? It, it was, was six. Oh, yep. You're right. It's six clues. Thank you. Yeah. Ugh. Not only is that a lot of content for the viewers to not get, but that's a lot that's of a money lot of on the money. board. Yeah. And that one was not really the fault of the players. Like, because sometimes no. players play slow. They take a long time picking clues. As we've seen in this season especially there there have been a number a lot of episodes that have had that have left clues on the board but mm-hmm. this one this one was not on the players yeah some of the really intense jeopardy nerds will say that in your clue selection you should take into account these video clues but that is not something that they officially ever tell the contestants yeah they never tell you how to strategically do your clue selection I don't think they even tell you that those video clues, they will keep the round going until they're all played. No, that that's not mentioned. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just, I think that's been sort of surmised by the Jeopardy fan community, but it that's never like officially stated by anyone from Jeopardy, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the, the super Jeopardy nerd strategy advice is to play video categories first or early in the Jeopardy round, but to save them for last in Double Jeopardy because they will keep the round going 
until those are all played. And those video clues will probably mean that not all the clues in your game end up being revealed. Yeah. So saving them for last in double jeopardy makes sense because they're not going to time the round out until you've gotten to all of them. Right. Um, but playing them first in jeopardy is good because you want them to end the jeopardy round so you can play the higher value double jeopardy. Right. I feel like that was an excessive amount of explanation. That's okay. It was an excessive <laughs> amount of clue. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and then we had Alex saying that Survivor had been on for 40 years, not realizing that it was 40 seasons in 20 years. Yeah. That happens, though. Um, but it's nice to see Alex being a mere mortal. Right. I enjoyed the Beard Man category. Not for any particular oh, yeah. reason other than just, like, check out these beards. <laughs> it was cool. There, there were some remarkable beards. Yeah. I feel like we should send a thank you back in time to 11-year-old Grace Bedell of New York, who encouraged Abraham Lincoln to have a beard. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, would we have won the Civil War if he hadn't had a beard? It's an important historical question. And frankly, one that's not explored enough. Mm. The effect of the beard on the war effort. I mean, yeah. I mean I'm mean, i convinced. The Daily Double comes at pick number 10. Uh, it's the $800 clue in the Hyde category, H-Y-D-E. And the clue is Anne Hyde was the mother of two British queens, Anne and this woman who married William III. Terry found it, and he wagered 3200 which was uh, an all-in bet, and he correctly identified who is Queen Mary of William and Mary fame. For further connection, if you are not already aware that William III of England was also William of Orange of the Netherlands, so mm. that was a brief unification of those two houses. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Terry's in the lead at 8,400. Mackenzie is pretty close at 7,400. And Tom is at 2,200. So he'll pick first from the categories World Rivers, Act of Congress, AKAs, Entertainment, The Not-So-Vicious Circle, Art Subjects, and Hawaiian Crossword Clues. Uh, but we only got one of those Hawaiian crossword clues. And we only got one daily double. That's true. They let a daily double go unplayed because yeah. they ran out of time and yep. never found it. I'm guessing it was in Act of Congress, AKAs at the 2000 level. That's my guess. Hmm. It's a shame we'll never know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's, it's true. We will not. We got another, you should know your Canadian geography and study your maps clue mm -hmm. in World Rivers at the $1,600 level. Its name means swiftly flowing river and it crosses the province of the same name, the northern and southern branches meeting near Prince Albert. And if I remember correctly, there was a map that showed mm -hmm. Alberta next to it, highlighted the province and I think labeled Alberta. I don't remember if it labeled Alberta, but it might have. I think it did. The provinces of Canada, west to east, my mnemonic. Do you have a mnemonic for these? I, I do, <laughs> for the big ones at least. 
What's yours? You go first. Yeah, mine is uh, Billy and Sally made our queen nervous playing near needles. Oh, so you go all the way through the the maritime yeah. provinces. Mm-hmm. Yes. I just kind of I just kind of remember that the which maritime provinces are which. Mine was because I had never learned them before and never learned a mnemonic for them. I just had to come up with them. So, um, mine was badass soldiers march on quietly. <laughs> That's so good. That's much better than mine. Um. And then you get to the maritime provinces and it's, you know, I just, yep. I just hey, memorized where those are because they don't really go necessarily in order like west to east. They, right. You gotta, you gotta mean, know which is north and which is, they kind of do, but like, yeah. Yeah. Having them by first letter is not that helpful when three of the four start with N, you know? That's um, true. That's so, true. Anyway, learn your Canadian geography. Yeah, there are far fewer provinces than than U.S. states. Mm-hmm. It's true. The second and final Daily Double ah, <laughs> comes in the art subjects category. I'm sure that the contestants are at least as disappointed as we are about oh, not yeah. Daily Double 3. Oh, I um, hated not getting all the clues. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Daily Double 2, the final Daily Double, comes in the art subject category at the $800 level. Mackenzie finds it and makes it almost a true Daily Double, wagering 13000 of her 13800 It's the 19th pick. Not sure what leaving yourself the 800 does, except make sure that you get a chance to play in Final Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. In any case, she gets the clue. Anna McNeil was arranged in gray and black for a work by this artist, her son, and she correctly responds, who is Whistler? There's no wrong reason to know a thing, and I know that from the Mr. Bean film. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I mean, I'm sure I would have encountered the work of Whistler at some point afterwards, but... Sure. Yeah. But that's where where that first landed in your brain? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. I don't remember. I had to learn it like three or four times at that painting. I don't even remember what it's actually called, but like study in gray and black or something. Mm-hmm. I remember that it's something like that, but it took me a long time to re- to learn that that's what it was called. Yeah, there's a there's some Whistler in the in the art museum of the little city where I grew up, the the Worcester Art Museum. I didn't understand the significance of that as a kid going to the museum until <laughs> until the Mister Bean movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, with that correct daily double, Mackenzie lands at 26,800 to Terry's 11,200 and Tom's 4,200. And just a few more clues are played, but nothing that changes the fact that she finishes double jeopardy with a lock game. Uh, Terry ends with 10,800, Tom with 4,600, Mackenzie with 26,400. And they get the final Jeopardy category from screen to stage. And the clue, this 2007 movie came to Broadway with an all-female creative team, including book and direction, and with songs by pop star Sarah Bareilles. Tom did not come up with anything. Uh, He had a $4,337 wager. Um, It had what is question mark. Terry, who put down what is a leave last time, which was great, (laughs) um, uh, has responded, what is the answer to this clue? (laughs) Uh, With a $420 wager, I I appreciate him. Yeah, Um, 
And I guess in a way he's correct, but not the right kind of correct. He's not Uh, wrong. Yep. The answer to this clue is the answer to this clue. It's very meta, you know. Yeah. Uh, But Mackenzie actually knows it. What is waitress with a zero dollar wager? So she is our winner with Mm $26,400. Going into Tuesday, we have Caitlin Drinkard, a musician from Hamtramck, Michigan. Rex Wessel, an information security engineer from Albertus, Pennsylvania, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,400. And the Jeopardy round begins with the categories three-word cities, she married that rock star, buckets, architecture, the 20th century, and contronym. Whenever I hear about the bucket list, I think of Jeopardy, so it's fun to get a bucket list clue. It was in the buckets category, of course, at the $600 level. The bucket list starred these two Oscar winners known for playing God and Satan in other films. That is Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. Caitlin got it. I'm trying to remember this little bit of Jeopardy lore. Correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember this, that they were going to have a scene where one of those two characters appeared on Jeopardy as part of their bucket list. Hmm. Um, And they taped the scene, but it ended up not making it into the final cut of the movie. And I think, if I'm remembering right, like, Alex Trebek found out that it didn't make it when he, like, went to see the movie. Oh, yeah, that does sound familiar. I I feel like, yeah, I feel like I've heard that story, too. Like, Like, we heard it in the green room. Yeah. Yeah. Or possibly, I mean, it might be more vivid for me than for you because you would have been like the work with the contestant coordinators. Like, I feel like maybe he told that story to the audience because he, he does like Q and A with yeah. the audience during the commercial breaks. Yeah, it's possible. Um, we get daily double one in the architecture category at the eight hundred dollar level. It's the twenty second pick, and Rex finds it. He has 2,600. He's tied with Mackenzie, and then Caitlin is trailing with 2,000. He makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. This British style of architecture was ushered in beginning with the reign of Henry VII. He guesses what is Gothic, but that is Tudor. Yeah, Hen- Henry Seventh was Henry Tudor at the end of War of the Roses. That's the beginning of the Tudor dynasty, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he drops to zero and makes up a little bit of that in the last few clues. Um, so we go into Double Jeopardy with Mackenzie leading at 4,000. Rex is in third at 2,000 and Caitlin has 3,400. And we get the categories Speaking Volumes, Chemistry, TV Paris, that used to happen, Religious Idioms, and V end of the Russian name. Um, v will be at the end of each Russian name response. Mm-hmm. That category seemed to run a bit easy for me. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, $400 clue is Romanov. That's fine. But even the $1,600 clue, you remember his brilliant pawn sacrifice on the 14th move of the 10th game of the 1995 match against Anand. And it's Kasparov. Mm-hmm. If you don't know chess masters, then that's that's fair. But even 
I, I would not consider myself well-versed in the chess world, and the only name that fits the category is Kasparov, so yeah, that was my guess anyway. Mm-hmm. One time on a, uh, on a trip, I walked into a tourist trap restaurant, and the menu included an endorsement from Gary Kasparov. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well-known for his culinary taste. <laughs> I know. <laughs> The Daily Double number two comes in the religious idioms category, and Rex started there at the beginning of Double Jeopardy, and he just went straight down from the $400 clue. So this is pick number four. It's at the $1,600 level, and Mackenzie finds it. She wagers 3000 so not as big a bet as she has done before. She has 6400 and she wagers 3000 The clue is... Mm-hmm. Something bad that later turns out to be good is one of these at first hidden signs of favor. Mackenzie is not able to come up with anything, but the correct response is a blessing in disguise. So she loses 3000 there. That puts her in a tie with Caitlin at 3400 The The $1,200 clue in the TV Pori category, there are Jawas, Bounty Droid IG-11, and Giancarlo Esposito as Moff Gideon in this Disney Plus show that debuted in 2019, which is The Mandalorian, but they really buried the lead there because if they wanted everyone to be able to get it, they should have just said Baby Yoda. Right. Because everyone knows Baby Yoda. Everyone knows Baby Yoda. I haven't seen The Mandalorian yet. I have not either. We don't have Disney Plus. Uh, we, we got the Disney Plus, but I just haven't, haven't mm. done The Mandalorian thing yet. I keep trying to get my kids into Star Wars, but I think a little intimidating to a six-year-old i don't know i was watching it at six i think i know i think me too it was a different Uh, time though you know yeah the way we that my dad got us is we're gonna lay underneath the tv and stare up at it as the ship comes over Mm -hmm. that was the coolest thing that's fine yeah we get daily double number three in the the end of the russian name category at the twelve hundred dollar level Mackenzie finds it and again wagers 3,000. At this point, she has 9,400 to Caitlin's 5,400 and Rex's 2,400. And we're at clue number 26. So uh, come down to the end here. The clue is this scientist who worked with dogs also showed how the flow of the stomach's digestive juices is controlled by the vagus nerve. And she correctly responds, who is Pavlov? scientist who worked with dogs that's um that's a pavlov for pavlov uh so uh all right um and that's entirely enough from me um so at the end of the double jeopardy round we get mackenzie with twelve thousand four hundred, rex with four thousand caitlin with five thousand four hundred and the final Jeopardy category is African geography. And the clue is this West African country of 12 million doesn't border the 1,200 mile wide gulf of the same name. This one is a deeper geography question. Um, it's not mm-hmm. simply looking at a map and knowing knowing what they're highlighting. So Rex wagered 1401, which would potentially get him into second place he guessed what is chad 
I don't know that Chad necessarily counts as a West African country, but it's a guess. That is incorrect. Caitlin wagered 2601 to try and get up above Rex doubling. She guessed what is Senegal, which is a West African country, but that is incorrect. Uh, and Mackenzie wagered a big zero and guessed what is Gambia, but the correct response is Guinea. I did not have that one. Yeah, I didn't get there. Little little trivia about Chad. The, the word Chad actually means lake. So Lake Chad in Chad is one of those redundant geographical locations. It just means Lake Lake. Oh, neat. So yeah, uh, Mackenzie had a lock game, so she moves on to the next day. Um, and with a like a nice round score still. Um, yeah. You know she's she hasn't been making weird daily double wagers, and she's had a lock game on both of her games, and so there's no like ones or ninety nines. So on Wednesday, we have Sam Leon, an international trade specialist from Washington, D.C., Adam Greenfield, a client escalations manager from Astoria, New York, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, with two-day cash winnings totaling $38,800. And we get the Jeopardy round categories around the world, offbeat history, influential writing, animated TV characters, weights and measures, and four-letter words ending in O. I uh, got into the weeds thinking about wine bottle sizes and what they're called in the weights and measures category. Mm -hmm. The clue was this large unit for a bottle of wine holds 1.5 liters. And um, when you get into the really big ones, they're all named after biblical figures. I think biblical kings mostly not not always kings of israel but kings of like kings in the bible Hmm. but in this case this is like just the size that's like double a standard wine bottle and it's just called a magnum then there's a double magnum and then there's a jeroboam a rehoboam a methuselah a salmanazar a balthazar nebuchadnezzar and solomon also known as melchior Mm. anyway I liked the whole book category, or influential writing, as I want to do. I wasn't that familiar with why Johnny can't read, although I did get that clue correct, which was Rudolf Flesch found that the son of a friend had never been taught to sound out letters, hence the book Why He Can't Read, and you were supposed to come up with Johnny. Mm-hmm. But that, that book sort of kicked off the reintroduction of phonics into the curriculum in the u.s there had been more of a like a sight word approach prevailing up Mm -hmm. until that point yeah yeah so the daily double shows up in the around the world category it was pick number five so pretty early on sam finds it and he wagers 1800 which is a true daily double at that point and the clue is the three t's in chinese censorship are taiwan Tibet, and this locale made infamous in 1989. And he correctly identifies what is Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Mackenzie has 5,000, Adam has 2,000, and Sam is in the lead with 7,200. We get the double Jeopardy categories, famous Texans, mythical creatures, bee in medicine, each correct response will begin with a bee, potpourri, the writers are just kind of 
making fun yeah. of me for thinking it was retired, Kyle. Yeah, just sticking my nose in it. Uh-huh. A disaster area. And same first and last letter. I know I've talked about how I love mythology anyway, but I felt that the mythical creatures category was not necessarily easy. It was on the easy side. I, I, yeah, I kind of felt that way, but I also felt like all of the clues in it were of equal difficulty mm, was yeah. the thing. Like, if you don't know mythical creatures, then they're all going to be hard for you. But I didn't mm-hmm. think that any of them were necessarily easier than any other. Mm-hmm. Chimera mm-hmm. might have been... Oh the yeah, most obscure of the set, I think. But yeah, I think they were they were all comparable. Yeah, that was the sixteen hundred dollar clue. It showed a picture of a sculpture. It says, "Seen here is an Etruscan sculpture of this creature with the head of a lion, a goat's head on its back, and the tail of a serpent." That's a chimera, which is also where we get the term for organisms with multiple sets of DNA. I think that sounds right. Mackenzie got the dust bowl clue correct and is from oklahoma yeah so she better so yeah well i mean you know it's it's one of those things where i mean probably the other players also knew it and tried to ring in yeah, you know yeah, but yeah. it's but it's satisfying when the person who obviously has a personal connection of some kind gets the clue yeah and it's funny when somebody else does right right you probably remember in in my third game andrew lundy had talked in the break about his son taking him for uh, a trip. His son got his pilot license and flew him around the CN Tower in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then in the double Jeopardy round after that, there was a question about the CN Tower and what, what city it was in. And then Riley got in and got it. Yeah. That was fun. That is the situation I was thinking of when mm-hmm. I said it's fun. Oh, there, you know, I've seen it happen other times. Right. But that, that's <laughs> the one that I remember well. Yeah. We get daily double number two in the disaster area category at the $800 level. It's the seventh pick. Sam finds it and wagers 7,000 of his 10,400. At that point, Mackenzie has 6,600 and Adam has 2,400. And Sam gets the clue. In the 1670s, the 202-foot monument column was built in this city near the origin of a large fire a few years before. And he correctly responds, what is London? Great fire of London. Uh, The third daily double showed up in the mythical creatures category it was at the twelve hundred dollar level pick number 16 Mackenzie finds it and she wagered eight thousand which was most but not all of her eleven thousand four hundred uh at this point sam had actually taken a huge lead he was up to twenty thousand two hundred so Mackenzie felt accurately that she needed to make a move so big bet and the clue is those who couldn't answer her riddle what walks on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening were killed. And she knows that it is the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. She got, it, there was that like big nod mm-hmm. of like recognition and relief as she like read ahead in the clue. And Alex was only a few words in before you could tell that she like, she had figured it out and that she knew it and was going to get it correct. Yep. I had some skepticism about the wording on the very last clue. It was B in medicine at the $1,600 level. This type of delivery means that the baby is born feet or tushy first instead of head first. And I'm not sure what word they should have used instead of tushy. Yeah, but maybe just like bottom first or something. Yes. Were they just trying to make Alex uncomfortable? Like Maybe. <laughs> I, that seemed like an odd choice to me, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. 
Mackenzie and Sam were going back and forth all through Double Jeopardy, staying pretty close after she had that last daily double to get a little bit above him. And it felt bad for Adam because he just couldn't get in, really. Yeah. Um, you know, my guess is that he knew a lot of the material and the, with two people who were strong on the material and the buzzer, I think he just got kind of locked out. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Mackenzie is in the lead with $30,200. Adam has 3600 Sam has 23400 they get the category international sports and the clue it's the only country that has played in every FIFA World Cup tournament winning five times. And the correct response is one of the things that occurred to me, but I don't think I would have gotten it correct. I think I would have ended up going with a different option. Adam responds, what is France? That's incorrect. Um, and he's wagered 3500 Sam has made a $23,400 wager. Yeah. Everything, which is usually a mistake from second place. Mm-hmm. But he's correct. Yeah. Maybe he was just super confident on the category international sports. Yeah. Maybe he just thought, thought he couldn't get it wrong. Yeah. In any case, he had it right. What is Brazil? Um, but Mackenzie has it correct also with a cover bet. So buy a single dollar because she's bet enough to land her at twice Sam's end of double jeopardy score plus one up by a single dollar Mackenzie is the winner mm-hmm. it's good showmanship that Alex Trebek does the like you know buy but one dollar yeah but but really yeah. it's the it's the margin that makes sense given betting strategy <laughs> right yeah. yeah Mackenzie's final score makes sense Sam was taking a big risk that could have paid off yeah when the person in the lead wins by a dollar, it's because they made a cover bet. Right. Big combined Coriat for this game, relatively 42,800. Mm-hmm. Which is to say that most of the clues on the board got answered correctly. Yeah. The first time. Yeah. And they didn't leave any unrevealed. They did, yes. So going into Thursday, we have Amal Karim an impact officer from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Judy Mater, a project manager from Maitland, Florida, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who is now three days cash winnings total $85,601. Pretty good score for three days. And the categories in the Jeopardy round are The Bible Book Tells Me So, Lesser-known names, geographically speaking, silent K is golden, and K is in quotation marks, five of a kind, and TV drama. I enjoyed the uh, the $1,000 clue in the silent K category. It's always a, fu- mm. it's a fun little bit of American history to me. The clue is, this U.S. political party was big in 1854, but apparently never hired a branding consultant. Uh, and that's the Know Nothing Party, which mm-hmm. I believe grew out of anti-Masonry and uh, anti-immigration and other other antis. It was, I guess, kind of the Tea Party of its day. Really stood for everything that it was against, not really for anything. Yeah. Which is why it didn't do too well. <laughs> uh, I believe Millard Fillmore became a Know Nothing hmm. after his presidency, when he became super irrelevant again. Hmm. 
So we get the Daily Double in the lesser known names category at the $600 level. It's the 14th pick. Amal finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with 2,800. At that point, Mackenzie has 2,000 and Judy has 800. And Amal gets the clue. Philippe Cordius taught her the art of wax modeling and in 1794 left her his two museums. Um, and she correctly responds who is Madame Tussaud. Takes her into a pretty solid lead. I've heard it's really cool, Madame Tussauds, but I've never felt the desire to go there. Yeah, me either. I just thought it would be kind of creepy. but Yeah, the Bible book tells me so category. I noticed that the Bible books were in the order that they appear in the Bible, although we never saw the bottom clue. But I'm curious whether that pattern would have been borne out to the end. Hmm. Interesting. And the, they are in the order that they appear in, like, the Christian yeah. version of the Bible. Uh, it's different if you're reading a Tanakh, which is, like, the Jewish version, which groups the Bible, has the has all of the books of what Christians would call the Old Testament, or now often the Hebrew scriptures or the First Testament. There are various ways that seminaries are teaching us to refer to them that aren't don't have the same pejorative connotations that Old Testament Mm. can. Okay. Um, Anyway, all the same books as that section of the Christian Bible, but they're grouped differently and in a different order. Anyway, yeah, we had uh, first Genesis and then Exodus and then Ecclesiastes, which in the Christian canon appears with like the wisdom books. Mm Mm-hmm. Between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And then at the $800 level was a quote from Jonah, who is uh, one of the minor prophets, so at the toward the end of the Old Testament. So I wonder if there would have been something from the New Testament at the $1,000 level. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, <laughs> Alex showed off by switching into German for a second after they all missed that Wiener Schnitzel mm-hmm. clue. The clue was this popular breaded and fried veal dish is named for the capital of Austria. It was in the geographically speaking category at the $400 level. And Amal guessed, uh, what is Vienna? Misunderstanding the clue and, and naming the capital of Austria. Alex gave more prompting than he normally does. He said, we need the dish. Um, and she said, she froze up and then said, but got in, what is a Vienna cutlet just in time, which is a Fine guess if you have uh, gotten tripped up thinking you just needed to provide the name of the city. And then uh, Mackenzie rang in with what is Vienna sausage, but Wiener schnitzel is correct. So the score is at the end of the Jeopardy round. Mackenzie's at 6,000, Judy is at 1,200, and Amal's in the lead at 7,800. And the categories we get are history timeline, body part adjectives, establishing some borders, a role for the director, Knickknack, and Kerouac. Ah, oh, such a bad pun. That's it. That's not, yeah, that's a bad pun. We had Spittoon as a correct response this time, which was funny because uh, we had that incorrect Spittoon response a couple weeks back. This is where I find my humor these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I can't remember. It was like a Broadway lyrics category. Yeah, from the Music Man. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, in the knickknack category, we had um, you don't see these brass receptacles for tobacco chewers much anymore, at least not used for their original purpose. Now we have actual spittoons coming up. And I assume that they had had this clue written before the wrong guess of spittoon came up. So I assume that I assume that's just a fun coincidence. But in any case, I was amused. Daily Double number two is in that same category at the $2,000 level. Judy finds it on the 12th pick and wagers 3,000 of her 8,400. At that point, Amal has 11,400, so if she gets it correct, they will be in a tie for the lead. Mackenzie has 8,000. And the clue is, a high-stakes card game shares its name with this French glassmaker that produces gorgeous paperweights like the one seen here. And there was a picture. It was really pretty. Mm-hmm. kind of want one. Judy guesses Limoges. The correct response is Baccarat. Yes. Which was the game of choice for James Bond for a long time. Hmm. But up until, I'm not certain of this, but uh, the sort of reboot with Daniel Craig and Casino Royale, the game of choice there is Texas Hold'em. Probably so that audiences could understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. But in all the old films, he plays Baccarat. Yeah. I was not aware that, that Baccarat was a was a glassmaker. Oh, I had no idea either. <laughs> yeah. So I, I correctly guessed based on high stakes card game, although I, it felt like kind of a shot in the dark, but mm-hmm. I, I was pleased to be correct. Nice. Yeah. I really enjoyed the history timeline category, which, which came up right after that Daily Double. All the clues in it I felt were... I don't know. I just enjoy them. Maybe because I got them all. The $2,000 clue in that category. In 73 AD, during a siege of this fortress, Jewish zealots took their own lives rather than be captured by the Romans. And that's Masada. And that's something that I don't know much about. I've I've heard it mentioned a couple of times. And I that's that's one thing that every time I'm here, I hear it. I'm like, I need to I need to look into that and learn more about it. And then I forget as soon as I'm, you know, 10 feet away yeah that's a it's a really cool story i went there when we um when i traveled in israel although it's not especially a, a significant site in christianity but it's a really interesting place mm-hmm. and it's on a super high kind of mountain hill it's very it, it's a it's a big climb um you can take like i can't remember like a cable car or something mm. to get up there but we climbed the stairs which is intense (laughs) um the romans built like a i can't remember what you call it but they like built like a like a ramp thing to get troops and weapons and stuff Hmm. up interesting yeah something that i that i thought about while we were there is that there's been a lot of theological sort of shifting or like ethical shifting around around suicide mm-hmm. and whether that is ever a like a justifiable or righteous act and in what contexts and which you can see actually in some of Paul's letters um mm. but we'll get into that some of some other sure day. sure um you know that's a different podcast <laughs> that's a that's a different podcast you know but in in any case you know this this was a political and religious community right like those two things don't split up as easily in in antiquity as 
I'm not sure that they do now, but you know, but in any case, like that, this ultimate decision to, to die rather than be captured that was, uh, you know, for them, the right and like righteous decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Haunting place, fascinating story. And that all happens shortly after the destruction of the temple and um, yeah, in Jerusalem. Anyway, Daily Double number three. Uh, it's in the Establishing Some Borders category, and it's pick number 19. Amal finds it, and she wagers 3,000 of her 12,200. So she's in the lead and makes a, I guess, sizable wager. Could have been bigger, but she probably didn't want to risk her lead at that point. And the clue is Egypt to its east, Algeria to its west. And she correctly identifies that that is Libya. So this is another one of those just look at some maps category. Study your maps. Yep. Yep. So she extends her lead. But for the rest of the round, Mackenzie makes a push. And Mm -hmm. at the very end, the last couple of clues... Mackenzie capitalizes on some incorrect responses from Amal, and she ends up going into Final Jeopardy with the lead. So Mackenzie has 1,600, Judy has 5,400, and Amal has 12,800. They get the Final Jeopardy category, The Race to Space. The clue is, in the 1960s, this Mideast country had a space program, and one of its rocket launches, the Cedar IV, is commemorated on a stamp. I saw the category and was like, oh, no, you know, like I, <laughs> I know a little bit about you know, space exploration and that whole that whole era, but probably, you know, like a, not enough to know a final Jeopardy about this. But Mideast country plus cedar. Mm-hmm. That is not really a space question. That's uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. So uh, Judy wagers four thousand six hundred. I guess she's just trying to get up to 10,000. That seems like a good number. Sure. Um, and uh, her response is, what is Jordan? That's incorrect. So she drops down. Amal has wagered 9,601. Um, and her response is, what is Lebanon? Mackenzie also has wagered 9,601. That is that is a cover bet from Mackenzie. This, I think, we talked about this last week, that you're you're up there with the lights on you and everybody hovering while you do your math with a sharpie yeah and you're throwing around a lot of four digit numbers and it's very easy to accidentally grab one of your intermediate numbers or get flustered and think that your intermediate number is the number right so i think that amal in the course of her calculations came up with her her guess of what would be what mackenzie would be likely to bet and then either forgot to go on and do the calculations of what what second place should bet in that circumstance, or perhaps she went on, did the calculations, and then accidentally copied down the wrong number. Like I don't I don't know what happened up there, but I I feel like I see this happen regularly, that somebody puts down a number that I have in my like in my scratch work of, you know, how you calculate that final wager. Uh-huh. I feel like that's an easy error to make for sure especially in tough conditions anyway yeah so Mackenzie also has 9,601 which is a cover bet and has written what is Lebanon (laughs) Alex kind of razzes her for her 
bad spelling. Um, she has L-E-B-B-E-N-O-N. But there's, you know, that is clearly pronounced Lebanon. And the mm-hmm. rule is if you can read it out loud and it sounds right, then it is correct. Yep. Like, for instance, if you write Wiley Coyote as one word. For instance. For instance. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mideast and Cedar is Lebanon. Lebanon. Um, yeah. yeah, and Cedars of Lebanon. I, I did not know that Lebanon had a space program. I didn't but. either. That was that was really uh, fascinating to me. Yeah. So Mackenzie is our winner with 25,601. And on Friday, we have John Furman, a retired IT manager from Pasadena, California. Kimberly Brazier, a social advertising strategist from Queens, New York. And Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, returning with four-day cash winnings, totaling $111,202. And we get the Jeopardy category. (laughs) This board killed me. This was so good. So good. Uh, We get the Jeopardy categories. Familiar phrases. Ooh, sorry. You're out of the hole make a selection and finally the writers are trying to be clever <laughs> yes <laughs> which was so meta this is so, so good. good it was so good those are i mean presumably if you're if you're however long we are into this podcast you're familiar with these familiar phrases mm-hmm. uh which are all things we hear a lot on jeopardy right yeah this was great Loved it. Yeah. My, my notes for the first round are just these categories. I am screaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Few clues were left unplayed mm. in the single Jeopardy round, but we got to all of the double Jeopardy ones. So that's good. Yep. We get Daily Double One as the seventh pick at the $600 level of familiar phrases. John finds it and wagers 1000 At that point, he has 400 to Kimberly's 600 and Mackenzie's negative 400. And I think at that point he had already, I mean, he'd gotten one correct and I think he had forgotten to phrase it as a question. And then he gets the clue, passing this test originated with using it to dissolve substances to see if they were really gold or not. He guesses litmus test again forgetting the what is but it doesn't matter because the correct response is acid test yeah litmus test wasn't a bad guess but that's used to measure ph so right the relation to gold was a bit bit of a stretch there yeah i uh i couldn't think of anything other than litmus test in time although i knew that it was for ph not for gold and john ended up getting a few corrections in single jeopardy to remember his phrasing because he also forgot to put uh his response in the form of a question a few clues later in the writers are trying to be clever oscar wilde once quipped that this other irish wit has no enemies but is intensely disliked by all his friends um and he rang in and said george bernard shaw Mm -hmm. and alex reminded him to remember his phrasing yep he got the hang of it after that good that's kind of surprising to me because I practice so much at home, mm-hmm. always responding in the form of a question that it it's almost mm-hmm. second nature now. Like, I feel like if I were to go on to another quiz show, I would have a hard time not saying what is. You would end up wearing the Ben Stein dunce cap? Yes. 
probably, <laughs> although I would not go on Ben Stein's show. Not that it's around anymore. It went off the air ages ago, but sure. Yeah, but that's even, it, even so, it, I'm okay. That was one of the one of the gimmicks was if you responded in the form of a question, you got a dunce cap. Yeah, I've gotten made fun of at at local trivia events for responding. In particular, I got made fun of for saying who are Newton and Leibniz. But mm. I got the points, so I don't care. Yeah, and that's when you stand up and be like, have you been on Jeopardy? That's yeah. what I thought. You back off. <laughs> Can't step um, to this. I liked seeing uh, David Sedaris come up because I was a fan from ages ago at the $1,000 level and the writers were trying to be clever. In Santa Land Diaries, this humorist wrote about his stint as a Christmas elf at Macy's. That's David Sedaris. Santa Land Diaries is great. Never read it. Oh, don't read it. Find the This American Life episode where David Sedaris reads it. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you can read it, but it's, I don't know. I feel like David Sedaris reads his own material so much better than. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. My internal we, monologue. We read uh, Me Talk Pretty one day in school. Oh, that was great. I remember that. That one was good. Yeah. I should read more of his stuff. I should read more of anything, really. <laughs> Book recommendations with Emily. Yep. Santa Land Diaries is brilliant, but find a recording. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you can get it on This American Life. Uh, you can get the audiobook. David Sedaris reading his own material is gold. Yeah. Uh, so the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Mackenzie is at 6,200. Kimberly's at 1,800. And John is at 2,000. And we get the categories Pulitzer winning journalism, food and drink movie quotes, in the arts world, you killed me, South American places, and 3M, M in quotation marks, so it will have three M's in each correct response. I loved seeing Kimberly shine in the food and drink movie quotes, and I liked the movie quotes they picked. Yeah, they were pretty good. I feel like my mom is going to call me tomorrow to ask if I heard uh, the $2,000 clue from Elf, which I think is my mom's favorite movie. We elves try to stick to the four main food groups, candy, candy canes, candy corns, and this liquid. Uh, and Kimberly got that one. It's Sir. syrup. Yeah, I uh, that scene where he makes the spaghetti, pours everything on it. It hurts my teeth to oh, watch that. Yeah. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Oh, it's so good, though. Yeah, I uh, feel like they exercised some restraint in their Jeopardy So Woke-ness with the $2,000 clue in Pulitzer winning journalism. In 2009, the East Valley Tribune of Mesa, Arizona won for a series on this local sheriff and his immigration enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, That's Joe Joe Arpaio, who... uh, Immigration enforcement was a delicate way of phrasing that. Yeah. Yep. Don't care to talk more about that. Yeah. No. We'll we'll drop it there. Yeah. The rest of that category was good, too. Yeah, Yeah. it was. We got Daily Double number two in that category um, at the $800 level. John found it and wagered $2,000, which was the maximum... Um, given that he had 800 at that point to Mackenzie's 9,800 and Kimberly's 8,200. He got the clue. The Boston Post won in 1921 for its exposure of the scheme of this Italian con man. And I was pleased that I also guessed it correctly. Um, That's what is Ponzi. I couldn't remember when the original Ponzi scheme was, and I didn't know that the 
Boston Post won a Pulitzer for exposing it, but Italian con man scheme sure seemed like it was Ponzi. Yeah. Which it was. For sure. Yeah. Daily Double number three came in the South American Places category at the $1,600 level. Uh, it was pick number 25. John finds it, and he wagers 5000 of his 6800 He's in third place at this point. Mackenzie is at 11000 and Kimberly's at 9800 So a $5,000 bet would put him into first place. And he gets the clue. Magdalena, Argentina and Las Piedras, Uruguay are on opposite sides of this waterway. And, oh, he was so close. At least, like, conceptually. He responds, what's the Playa del Oro? But the correct response is the Rio de la Plata, which Playa del Oro means golden beach, I believe. Right. Um, and Rio de la Plata is a silver river, or river of yes. silver. Yeah, that's that's one of those answers where you could tell that like he knew he had seen mm-hmm. the right answer at some point, right? Like I think Playa and Plata, if you've been reading, are like close, and you can think like, and I imagine like gold and silver kind of getting mixed up in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so that dropped him down quite a bit. And he had a another incorrect response. Couple clues later at a two thousand the two thousand dollar level in the three M category. Right. Uh, the clue was noctambulism is another word for this habit, and he guessed what is sleepwalking, which is correct except it doesn't fit the category. They need three M's in the mm-hmm. correct response, which, so they were looking for somnambulism, mm-hmm. and so that drops him down into the red, and right. he remained at negative two hundred until final jeopardy. So for the final jeopardy. Mackenzie's at 10,600, Kimberly is at 9,800, and John, unfortunately, is not able to participate in the category International Award Trophies. And the clue was La Maison Chopard crafts this annual awards crystal base and 118 gram 18 carat frond. Kimberly wagered 7,000. And guessed, what is the BAFTA? Uh, that's incorrect. Uh, Mackenzie wagered 9,001 and responded, what is Palm d'Or? She left the E off of Palm, which, again, Alex gave her a hard time for. Um, <laughs> that seems a little more nitpicky. Than yeah, because <laughs> it's not like, you, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I agree. But in any case, she is our winner for Friday, and uh, that means she has um, guaranteed herself a Tournament of Champions spot. Yes, especially with that total. She is up to $130,803 in five days. That is a... That is a lot. Yeah, a hefty, hefty prize. So yeah, all things being equal and, you know, assuming she doesn't do anything illegal, as some Jeopardy! champions have done in the past, she should be back for the next tournament. Which will be exciting. Mm-hmm. So we've, we yeah. we already have a good uh, a good slate of people from, from season 36 and the end of season, mm-hmm. season 35 as well. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Okay, so do you have guesses about the deep dive topic? Well, I know we like to go for triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. So 
just thinking about some triple stumpers. Are we talking about the Voting Rights Act of 1965? We're not talking about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay, I'm pretty sure we're not going to talk about the Borscht Belt. <laughs> um, so I considered it, but no. <laughs> okay. All right. My last guess. Are you talking about Captain Morgan? I'm not talking about Captain Aww. Morgan. I'm curious what your what your bypassed guess was, though. No, it was um, Tudor architecture. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I don't know how I would tackle that. Okay, so we're going back to Tuesday's game, mm-hmm. Double Jeopardy round, the speaking volumes category, and I did go with a triple stumper. It was at the $800 level. The clue was, here's a revelation. It's the seventh and, quote, last book in the Narnia series, and nobody guessed it, but it is The Last Battle. So uh, we will get to The Last Battle itself, but we are talking about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'll talk a little bit about The Last Battle in particular. Are you, I, I assume you've read the Chronicles of, have you read all of the Chronicles of Narnia? I have read all of the Chronicles of Narnia more than once. Were you like, yeah, were you, were you like a serious Narnia geek or like only only medium Narnia geek? I would, I would say medium. Um, I, en- okay. I enjoyed them. I did not get into them as much as I got into some other nerd stuff, so... I will I will argue that the best of them is the one that is least Narnia, though. And that's A Horse and His Boy. Really? Yeah, I love A Horse and His Boy. I think that's, oh, I think that's the best one. Tell me why. I just, it's been a long time since I've read them, so honestly, I, I don't I don't have a lot to put behind it, but I just remember thinking that it was the the best story, like the most the most interesting story and uh just kind of like I don't know, it was the it was the most compelling to me. Yeah. Huh. All right. I'm getting ready to go back to them once I can persuade my six-year-old to sit down and listen because he only likes to read things that he's already read in the past. Oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think that's it's developmentally typical. Um, sure. But also, like, there are so many good books I want to introduce him to, and I'll, like, take out, like, some Roald doll or, like, whatever, and he'll be like, no, I want to read Harry Potter again. <laughs> um, so, anyway... Yeah, I'm getting ready to go back to them. Um, and when I saw that clue come around, I was like, I think that's the one. But in any case, uh, we'll start with C.S. Lewis, talk about the Chronicles a little bit, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about The Last Battle a little bit. So uh, C.S. Lewis was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland, to Albert and um, Florence, known as Flora Lewis, and christened Clive Staples Lewis, although they called him Baby, and then he nicknamed himself Jaxy for no reason that anybody knew, um, <laughs> and went by Jack throughout his life. Interesting. Yeah. His father, Albert, was an attorney. He was descended from like farmers and mechanics, uh, so he was one of the first people in his family to attend college. He was very literary kind of guy um, and a very skilled speaker. C.S. Lewis's mother, Flora, was the daughter of a Church of England rector, and she was one of the first women to graduate from Queen's College in Belfast. Hmm. So uh, parents who had, you know, sort of had, you know, pretty high educational attainment. He was the their second child. His older brother, Warren, was born in 1895, uh, and he in 1898. And they lived in Belfast until 1905 when they moved 
to kind of the suburbs of Belfast, um, a house that was called Little Lee. And the house had all of these like hidden passageways and like little like tunnels in the attic that would, you know, that would connect like one room to another that like a child could crawl through. And one of C.S. Lewis's cousins recalls that there was sort of a very ornate wardrobe in that house also. But long story short, that house probably is an inspiration for uh, for some of the houses in, in England. The I mean, in particular, the house in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He had a pretty idyllic early childhood. Um, uh, the family had a nurse whose name was Lizzie Endicott, um, who he had a pretty warm and close relationship with. There were uh, like holidays on the seashore, memories of reading stories and writing stories and lots of lots of play outdoors. But things shifted when he was around 10. Um, his mother was diagnosed with cancer and died very shortly thereafter in 1908. And so uh, he lost his mother and his father was never really the same after that. I'm not sure that he was, you know, the warmest father to begin with, but losing his wife really sort of shifted his temperament and they had a strained relationship for the rest of the father's life. Lewis was sent to a boarding school in England not long after that, Winyard Boarding School, which was a pretty terrible period in his life. The facilities were run down and horrible. There was this very harsh schoolmaster who was actually so bad that not C.S. Lewis's family, but another family filed suit against the school for like excessive and dangerous discipline and the suit was settled out of court and if you've read any memoirs of the time about like English boarding schools of the time like abusive discipline in boarding schools was pretty much standard at that point so I'm I'm not sure what it takes to have it be bad enough that a lawsuit settles out of court but Mm. you know biographers say it was traumatic yeah and I believe them At that boarding school, he was required to attend Sunday morning services at the local Anglican church and had kind of a renewed commitment to his Christian faith, although it seems like it was a pretty kind of guilt and fear-based kind of approach to faith at that Mm -hmm. point in time. Um, And it sort of waned later in his teens. He, He became, you know, much less religious. Eventually, he left that boarding school. He was at another school called Campbell College after that near Belfast, but he dropped out due to illness after just one term. And then finally, he completed his education at Cherbourg House Boarding School in Worcestershire in England and had a like a tutor there who was very influential in his life. And from that point, he went on to Oxford, studying at University College starting in 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, but he interrupted his education because World War One started, and he did a two-year stint in the British Army, starting later in 1917. He had a close friendship with his roommate, um, a guy by the name of Paddy Moore, and they entered the army together and pledged to each other that if one of them died, then the other one would look after the, the family who was left behind. Hmm. So that that was a promise that they made to each other. C.S. Lewis got sick in France, I believe. And then while he was in a 
field hospital sustained further injuries from a shell explosion. You know, so so that sick and injured, um, he had to be evacuated, and ended up spending much of his two years in the army in in the hospital, first in France and then in England. But while he was sick and injured, um, his friend Patty Moore did actually die in mm. 1918, which began this lifelong connection between between. C.S. Lewis, um, Jack, mm-hmm. and uh, Mrs. Moore, Patty Moore's mother. He had a, a much younger sister who was part of the family also. Mm. But Mrs. Moore sort of became Lewis's new mother. He moved into the Moore's home after he finished his required residence in the Oxford dormitories. And he lived with her for like 30 years wow. until until she died in 1951. And was like was like a doting son to her um mm. you know he'd lost his mother and she had lost her son and they sort of bonded into this new family kind of unit at oxford he did very very well i don't really understand the british university system but he earned first class degrees mm-hmm. classics and ancient philosophy and english literature and was offered a one-year position as a lecturer and tutor at oxford and then following that was elected a fellow at Magdalen College at, at Oxford. His field officially was English language and literature, um, although I think his, his studies were pretty wide ranging. Uh, so he did a lot of work in philosophy. And the more he studied philosophy, the more he started feeling kind of a pull back toward the Christian faith. There was all of this kind of abstract, sophisticated, complex stuff that he was reading. And he started to feel a real attraction for the sort of more simple and concrete and personal faith that he'd felt in childhood. And at the same time, he is growing close with J.R.R. Tolkien and talking about religion with him a lot. And in his early 30s, he really recommits to Christianity and starts to develop the, the kind of more adult faith um, that would motivate a, ro- a lot of his writing. Um, so in his career, he wrote over 40 books. He was writing literary scholarship and criticism in his kind of Oxford University professor kind of role. Mm-hmm. But also, honestly, most a lot of that is lesser known because what he's known better for is his work in uh, Christian spirituality and apologetics. He uh, is remembered a little bit for his sci-fi work. He wrote the the Space Trilogy and the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, and, and memoirs also. So he's writing sort of broadly across an, a number of fields. In 1932, his brother Warren retired from the army and um, actually ended up moving in with Mrs. Moore and, and Lewis. And in the early 1930s, the inklings start to form. That's uh, what this circle of friends was called. Um, these, these writers, uh, C.S. Lewis, his brother Warren, J.R.R. Tolkien. There were a number of others who kind of rotated through. And there were regular members who were not as, not as you know, their fame, fame has not endured as much. But Owen Barfield was a particular friend of C.S. Lewis. Owen Barfield's daughter, Lucy, was C.S. Lewis's goddaughter and probably the namesake of the the Lucy of Chronicles of Narnia. Hmm. During the war, the World War II, he was invited to lecture to the Royal Air Force on Christianity 
Um, and he spent most of the weekends of the Warriors traveling to various Air Force bases to give uh, to give lectures. He also gave four series of talks on the BBC about faith, which would later be collected into the volume Mere Christianity. Mm. After the war ended, that's that's when he started writing the Chronicles of Narnia. He started started writing them in 1939, but just wrote like a couple of paragraphs that started to coalesce the beginning of a story he was dreaming about. Um, but in 1948, he really sat down and got to work. Uh, he was working on the series starting in 1948. So he was writing from 1948 to 1954. First, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that was completed that he originally envisioned as a standalone work. But in conversation with Owen Barfield, a question about backstory came up that sort of provoked him to uh, start developing the other books of the series. So he wrote them over the course of 1948 to 1954. And then they were published one per year as sort of a marketing strategy to kind of keep the momentum going. So they were published from 1950 to 1956. He was a bachelor through much of his life, um, but that changed late in life. In 1950, correspondence started with Joy Davidman. So initially she was uh, Joy Davidman Gresham. Uh, that was her, her married name in her first marriage, which was strained. And they started corresponding about his work. She ended up divorcing her husband and not long after that, they met in person. She ended up relocating from the U.S. to to the U.K. And they married in a civil ceremony for immigration reasons in 1956 so that she could stay in the U.K. And uh, shortly after that, she was diagnosed with bone cancer. They had like a religious marriage ceremony when she was in the hospital, like in her hospital room in 1957 um, at a time that they thought that she was close to the end of her life. But as it turns out, she was released from the hospital in April 1957 and was expected to live only weeks. They were really, you know, sending her home so she could be comfortable and, you know, at home for her final weeks. Um, But she did have pretty miraculous recovery and a reprieve of a couple of years. She was able to recover enough strength that they could travel a little bit. They went to Ireland and to Greece and she died in 1960. After her death, Lewis's health deteriorated and he suffered a heart attack in July 1963. Went into a coma and then surprised everyone by waking up, but never quite made a full recovery. So he died some months after that in November of 1963. So that's sort of a snapshot Mm -hmm. of his life. But looking more closely at the Chronicles of Narnia, so I mentioned that they were published one per year. And of course, the first one to be published and, and the most famous is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. After that, Prince Caspian was published and then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and then The Silver Chair, which it's been a while since I read them, but I would argue that's the, you know, the most underappreciated. I'm not sure it's objectively the best, but, you know, I think it gets it gets passed over and I don't think it should. The Horse and His Boy came after that and then The Magician's Nephew and then finally The Last Battle. And the last battle ended up winning the Carnegie Medal, which was supposed to be for the best work of children's fiction published that year. Although I sort of have a feeling that they, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. You know, I, I wonder if it was awarded the medal in part in recognition of sort of what the whole series had accomplished more than that work as a standalone. 
sort of strangely, um, C.S. Lewis advocated reading the books in chronological order, although a lot of fans really disagree with him there and uh, would make the case that the publication order is the best way to read them. That, you know, The Magician's Nephew is chronologically the first. It's about Narnia coming into being, but that it functions better as a prequel than as a first book of the series. And then the order from there is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Horse and His Boy takes place during uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, sort of. Prince Caspian and the Dawn Treader come after that. The Silver Chair comes after those, and and then the last battle, um, if you're doing it in chronological order. Talking about the creation of the book, C.S. Lewis had said that he had a mental image of a fawn carrying a parcel, starting from the age of 16. That that was an image that popped into his head at some point then, around that age. And that around the age of 40, he decided to flesh it out into a story. That would have been 1939, I believe that we uh, that that scholars do actually have that have a fragment. He had like kind of a long paragraph that he wrote trying to get that story started. Clearly, it was inspired by what was happening in his life at that time. Hmm. So he and and Mrs. Moore had had taken in children who were being evacuated from London during the Blitz, and they like there were children in living in his home, um, and so he started composing a paragraph that would become the premise for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about four children who had been sent away from their family to the countryside for their safety. He gave them different names in the in that original fragment, but, you know, clearly he was starting to kind of put the pieces together for this narrative. He was influenced by a number of children's authors, but also by a number of other sources. Beatrix Potter, who we've talked about on the podcast before, mm-hmm was a favorite author of his as a child. And so clearly that comes up. You can sort of see that in some of the some of the talking animals of Narnia. Nesbitt, he would point to as the author that he, the children's author he most admired and wanted to emulate. And then George MacDonald uh, wrote kind of fairy tale-ish things with an underlying theological orientation. It was clearly a big inspiration for him. But also in the Chronicles of Narnia, he would draw on mythology. He was really well-versed in a number of different uh, mythological traditions. He had studied some some Jung and would talk about archetypes, Mm. the Jungian notion of archetypes and how they related to what he was doing with the Narnia books. And obviously, and most importantly, he was drawing on Christian theology and scripture. He originally conceived the series as just the one book, but another author, uh, Roger Lancelin Green, asked him, having having like looked at a draft, you know, they, I, I think that Roger Lancelin Green was involved in the Inklings, and they would, you know, read drafts and excerpts to each other. So asked about the how the lamppost got there. If you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy goes through the wardrobe, through this sort of magical entrance into Narnia, where she finds herself in a snowy place in a forest, and there's this one lamppost there in the forest. So his friend Roger asks where the lamppost came from, and that got him started writing The Magician's Nephew. It was the second book that he that he started writing in the series, although it would take him up until close to the end of his writing to finally finish it. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, is published first, 
the story of these four children who um, are evacuated to the countryside where they are living with a professor named Diggory Kirk. The four children are the, the Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. In a game, I think it's a game of hide and seek. Lucy hides in a wardrobe uh-huh. and finds her way into Narnia. And there she meets Mr. Tumnus, who is the, the fawn carrying the package. Yep. And initially he's planning to turn her into the white witch, who's like the evil ruler of Narnia. But he ultimately changes his mind and repents and he brings her back to the lamppost and sends her away. And as she leaves the, the wardrobe, only a few seconds have passed and her siblings don't believe her about where she's been. That theme of time passing differently in Narnia than it does in this world um, keeps coming back in interesting ways. But then she returns to Narnia sometime later and Edmund, the younger of the boys, um, her he's her older brother, but not her oldest brother. He follows secretly. So he meets the White Witch um, who gives him Turkish delight and persuades him to try to return with his brothers and sisters. He lies about it, but soon after, all four need to hide from the housekeeper, and they go into the wardrobe and find their way into Narnia. They go to Mr. Thomas's house, but he's been arrested. They meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They learn that in Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas, and they hear this prophecy of two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve sitting on the thrones at Care Paravel. I'm doing a lot of, like, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe plot because you kind of need, you need it to get to the last battle, I feel like. Right. So when this prophecy is filled, that will end the White Witch's reign and Aslan will return. In the course of this, Edmund slips away to go to the White Witch, who is angry that he hasn't brought his brother and sisters and takes him as a prisoner. Meanwhile, the three remaining are getting word that Aslan is coming and winter is starting to turn into spring. They meet Father Christmas, who gifts them gifts, and they go to a place called the Stone Table. Uh, the White Witch is planning to kill Edmund there, um, but Aslan appears and offers to lay down his life to save Edmund's. Mm-hmm. How anybody misses that this is an allegory is beyond me. Um, oh. <laughs> but we were kids. Right. <laughs> so yes, she, uh, the White Witch says there's this, there is a deep magic that gives her the right to kill him, but she'll take Aslan's life in exchange. And uh, he's executed Lucy and Susan are watching from a distance and after this all happens and and his and everyone has left they they go and they're tending to his body and then a deeper magic brings him back from the dead mm-hmm. and he brings all of the Narnians that the witch has turned to stone back to life and together they fight and defeat the white witch's forces um, and the Pevensies are crowned kings and queens of Narnia and reign for decades. So they they reign into their adulthood, and then one day they find the lamppost and the wardrobe and go through, and there they are a few minutes later, um, and they are children again. Mm -hmm. That probably all sounds pretty familiar, but worth kind of running through. I think most children initially don't pick up on the allegory, but I tried to I tried to play it up there a bit. I mean, it's right it's right there in the plot, right? And this is this is very much about crucifixion and resurrection right right there are a number of other like significant theological themes happening but that's that's kind of the the big one there in the next one published in prince caspian all four of the pevensey siblings go end up back in narnia they are drawn there because susan's horn has been blown and c.s lewis talked about like that the kind of motivating question or idea that got this one going 
is the idea of summoning is this kind of big fairy tale theme that you, you know, you rub the genie's lamp or you do whatever and it summons someone. And he liked thinking about the flip side of that, that, you know, yeah, these Pevensey kids are, you know, going about their business and then are somehow drawn in because someone has found Susan's horn and summoned them. Yeah. And where they find themselves is Narnia 1,300 years later, 1,300 years after their reign. Hmm. Aslan hasn't been heard of. There's like a wicked usurper on the throne. And the rightful heir to the throne, Prince Caspian, has found the horn of Queen Susan um, and has summoned them. And then along with the other old Narnians, um, the talking beasts and the walking trees, they um, you know, they defeat the evil King Miraz and restore Caspian to the throne. Hmm. I'm not sure if he ever took on the name King, actually. The evil Miraz. The next one is the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this one, Susan and Peter are not among the children who end up in Narnia. Um, it's Edmund and Lucy. And then they're kind of naysaying, annoying cousin Eustace Scrub. Eustace. Yeah. Yeah. So they enter Narnia this time via a painting of a ship. They find themselves floating in the Narnian Ocean and are brought on board a ship by King Caspian, formerly Prince Caspian, Mm -hmm. who now is reigning and is seeking the seven lost lords of Narnia. Um, And on board, he also has the talking mouse Reepicheep, who wants to, who's like, has this like prophecy and he's trying to go to the end of the world to meet Aslan. Mm. And this is, I mean, it's like a, it's like an odyssey, right? Uh, They're traveling to various islands in search of these Lords. um, And on also they're, you know, sort of on their way to, to help Reepichu find like the ends of the earth, which they do ultimately find. And he, he finds what he's looking for. But there at the end of the world, a lamb appears to Edmund and Lucy and then turns into Aslan. It's a really heavy-handed allegory. (laughs) And tells them that they're not going to return to Narnia again, but that they should learn to know him in their world by another name. Hint, it's Jesus. Uh, Oh. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. On each island... They were. They have an adventure, and so there's a number of theological and ethical things that you could that you could point to in each of them. But you know, that's the that moment with Aslan at the end. I think that's the the, the biggest sort of theological piece. Yeah. I think next published is the Silver Chair. Eustace is back. Lucy and Edmund are not because Aslan told them they wouldn't be, um, and he and his classmate Jill Pole enter Narnia, and they're sent in search of Prince Caspian's son, Rillian. And there are some misadventures, but ultimately they find him in an underground kingdom where there's this green lady who enchants her subjects into believing that there is no life above the surface, let alone any Aslan. It's a book about atheism. Mm-hmm. And then we have The Horse and His Boy, which was published after The Silver Chair, um, but takes place during the reign of the four Pevensey siblings. But it takes place, it's like the, it's the most Narnian in that the protagonist is from that world, not from this world. So he, Shasta, and his talking horse, Bree, um, have to flee Kalerman to Narnia. It's an adventure story. It has caught quite a bit of flack because the way that C.S. Lewis writes Kalerman 
has a lot of imagery that looks a whole lot like problematic stereotypes of like Arab and Muslim culture. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, I haven't read them in a long time. Yeah. Imagine if I went back, I would see that now. You you would see it. Yeah. It's still a very good adventure story, but there's some problematic stuff there. And then the penultimate book to be published is the big prequel, uh, The Magician's Nephew. It's a creation story. It's Narnian Genesis. Mm-hmm. Diggory Kirk, who we would later come to know as the professor in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Polly Plummer are come by some magical rings that let them explore different worlds. They inadvertently bring a witch from a dying world, first into their world, and then into a new world, which becomes Narnia. And in the course of that, there's an explanation of how the lamppost comes to be there. There's this whole really cool thing with Aslan, like, singing the world into being. Yeah. And then there's this whole piece where Diggory is sent to get an apple from a garden and planted in Narnia. And then he there's, like, some temptation themes. Um, it is not exactly Adam and Eve, but there's, like, there's a temptation theme yeah. that comes up with the apple and the garden. And then the last to be published, of course, is The Last Battle, which opens with In the Last Days of Narnia. So... No question about where we're going, right. right? We know from the we know from the beginning that Narnia is coming to an end. Uh, so there's an ape named Shift who persuades a donkey named Puzzle to wear a lion skin and pretend to be Aslan, which that's getting into all kinds of like antichrist kind of imagery, maybe also like wolf and sheep's clothing kind of stuff, and then using this like fake Aslan. Shift starts to persuade the Narnians to serve his purposes, in particular to cut down talking trees mm. for uh, for Calorman. Meanwhile, King Tyrion is the king at this point, and his advisor Runewit, the centaur, tells him that there are strange and evil things happening. They get word about these talking trees being cut down. Tyrion, along with Jewel the Unicorn, set out to confront this problem and uh, Tyrion orders Runewit to gather an army while he goes to do that. They find two Calormines abusing a talking horse and they kill them both, which reminds me of the, the Moses narrative in Exodus. Mm-hmm. But then like over the, he's overcome with guilt. Um, they give themselves up to what they think to be Aslan. It's the false Aslan mm-hmm. for judgment but Tyrion overhears this conversation between Shift and a talking cat named Ginger and this Calarmine lord, uh, Rishda Tarkhan. And they're going to be presenting the idea that Aslan and the Calarmine god Tash are one and the same. Tyrion recognizes that that can't be right and that this whole thing is a fraud, but it's, it's too late because he's kind of given himself up for judgment. And tied to a tree overnight, he calls out to Aslan for help. The true Aslan. And he's given this vision of the friends of Narnia, people that he doesn't recognize in our world. And those people are Diggory, Polly, Peter, Edmund, Lucy, Eustace, and Jill. So a week later in Narnian time, although not much later in our time, Jill and Eustace arrive in Narnia. They release King Tyrion and Jewel and um, Puzzle, the, the donkey who's been wearing the lion skin, changes sides and joins forces with them. 
The dwarves are also rescued, but this whole thing has made them lose faith in Aslan. Their line is the dwarves are for the dwarves, except there's one dwarf named Poggin who is on their side and is, you know, kind of all in for Aslan. Meanwhile, um, Shift, the ape, and Rishda have unintentionally summoned the Calarmine god Tash, who is coming north. The Narnian army that Runewit has raised has been vanquished, and the Calarmines have conquered Caraparaval. Tyrion and his allies are trying to reveal um, Shift's deception, but and somehow this whole thing is centered around a stable. I don't remember or understand how, um, but there, Shift has this plan that they're going to be sending the troublemakers one at a time into the stable to meet Tashlan, the Aslan Tash god, and they've got somebody stationed inside the stable to kill whoever they send in. A battle ensues, and Narnians who aren't killed are getting thrown into the stable as sacrifices. And Tyrion, in this battle scene, ends up getting maneuvered into the stable. But there he finds not the guy who's supposed to be in there killing Narnians, but instead he's in a vast, beautiful land. And the kings and queen of Narnia, Peter and Edmund and Lucy, appear and banish Tash to his realm, who vanishes with Rishda, who who Tyrion has been fighting. The dwarfs also end up in there, but they cannot see this beautiful land that, that Tyrion is in. They're looking around, and all they see is a stable, which is very much in line with C.S. Lewis's eschatology. Mm. Then we have this, like, apocalypse, like, end of end of the world scene, right? Aslan brings Narnia to an end. So there's, there's this kind of last judgment kind of scene. Some animals are getting welcomed in, and others are turning into ordinary creatures and vanishing. Father Time calls the stars to come down into the sea and puts out the sun and the moon, and the land freezes, and the sea rises up, and they close the golden door. And then it's just this land that they've found. And Aslan keeps telling them, you know, go further up and further in. I didn't mention Emeth who is a, this Calarmine guy, but they're in in this land. They find Emeth, who is this Calarmine, who was this good, righteous guy who was doing all of these loving things in the name of Tash. Mm-hmm. And there he is in this land. And they are told that, you know, all, all of those good things that he did for Tash were really for Aslan. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful land is the real Narnia, of which the other Narnia was just a pale reflection and then far away they can see the real England and the Pevensies see their parents there and they learn that all these friends of Narnia who are there and the Pevensie parents have all died in a train crash. Mm. And so that's why they're in the real Narnia and the real England. Mm-hmm. It's like an afterlife thing. And then finally we learn this is only the beginning of the true story, which goes on forever. Uh, this is a direct quote. And in which every chapter is better than the one before. So that's that's the last battle. It gets real weird for a while. Yeah. But, you know, C.S. Lewis is trying to write a hopeful and, like, meaningful Christian eschatology for children yeah. um, <laughs> that takes place in a fantasy universe. So it's not too surprising that it gets it gets really strange. And also into that, he's incorporating a lot of the mythological elements that he loves. You can see a lot of Norse mythology in there, um, but also you can see a lot of his uh, Greek philosophical 
studies. And then the donkey wearing a lion's skin, that's um, that's an element from one of Aesop's fables. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is eschatological in nature. I think we, we talked about that briefly. I can't remember if it made it into the final cut of the podcast. Lewis is borrowing a lot, um, especially from Jesus's eschatological speeches. If anybody wants to look at those, like Matthew 24 is kind of the main reference point. There are elements of the book of Revelation coming in as well, but I would say I would say Matthew 24 is it is the bigger reference point mm. for what he's doing here. Mm. And the whole thing is really consistent with his whole theology, especially if you look at his work in Mere Christianity, you can see how this is that in a fantasy universe and for children. In particular looking at the this kind of last judgment scene, the creatures look at Aslan and it's their response to Aslan that sort of determines what happens to them. Because some of them sort of recognize and respect and love him, you know, maybe even with a little trepidation. And those are the ones who are welcomed into the real Narnia. Mm -hmm. And then the ones who like look at him and there's fear or hatred, those are the ones that turn into ordinary creatures and end up vanishing. And that's really in line with Lewis's idea that we are not so much judged by God as we make our choice to know God or to not know God. And that our choices kind of shape who we are and that our eternal destiny is to live as the person who we've chosen to become. And that that in itself is sort of heaven or hell, depending. Mm. I'm not sure if that's, I think that's mere Christianity. I've read, I've read a fair amount of Lewis and it's been a while. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's in there. That, all, that goes along. The Great Divorce also makes that point as well. Yeah, this came up recently on Learned League, um, but I was going to touch on it anyway. Much has been made of Susan's absence right. <laughs> uh, when the Friends of Narnia are brought to the real Narnia. Um, they die in a train crash. Susan isn't there. And I believe it's, is it Lucy? I think it's Lucy who explains that she's gotten interested in invitations and silk stockings and lipstick. I don't have the, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but that's the thing. I, I think I'm pretty close just from memory. <laughs> um, so feminists have some questions. I think it's fair to say. It's not exactly clear what Lewis means by this. And you can make a case that Susan has been distancing herself from Narnia increasingly over time, that she's been dismissive of this really significant event that she shared with her siblings and that that's what it's about. Also, the way that that's presented is that she is too interested in the traditional trappings of femininity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think we should, I'm not willing to let Lewis completely off the hook and sort of explain that away. As an Oxford bachelor, I think he probably didn't do a whole lot of thinking through gender. And (laughs) and, I mean, you know, (laughs) not many people were at that point. You know, my guess is that it might not have been that clear in his own mind. Mm -hmm. There was a Learned League question about this within J.K. Rowling quote about this issue. And it also referenced a short story by Neil Gaiman called The Problem of Susan, that short story has it's been turned into some kind of graphic novel which i have not looked at um i did because i'd heard enough references to the short story and i'm a neil gaiman fan anyway i happened to 
not have the short story collection where this one appeared. Um, so I, I tracked it down after the Learned League question. And it's actually a lot of Neil Gaiman's writing is so like locked down <laughs> that you that it's hard to figure out which short story is in which book. So if you're looking for the problem of Susan, it's in Fragile Things. Hmm. And content warning, it is graphic and weird. <laughs> um, it is super graphic and weird. There's a lot of violence. There is explicit sex between Aslan and the White Witch. Um, it's, uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. It was fascinating. Hmm. And I got the sense that Neil Gaiman was sort of angry about the whole Susan thing. Sure. And I think there's probably a lot more that could be said about the last battle, but I think we should probably stop there. So the quiz, I didn't get too cute with the theme. This is all like, it's all sort of roughly C.S. Lewis themed. Okay. Uh, so question one, uh, C.S. Lewis often used names that were meaningful in one way or another. There were biblical and mythological allusions. There was wordplay. There were foreign languages. The name Aslan itself has a meaning. It means lion in what appropriate language? Hmm. Don't really have many to choose from. So, and I have no, uh, no reason to believe one over another. So I would just go with Hebrew. Oh, that's not a bad guess, but it's Turkish. Ah, ah, Turkish delight. Yes. Yes. Incidentally, there's a great um, article that I should post on our social media and uh, and Patreon um, that I found somewhere that was that's all about what people thought Turkish delight might be. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> based only on having read about it in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yep. Question two: In the Silver Chair, Eustace and Jill are invited to a feast with the giants of Harpang. They make their escape after discovering a cookbook that reveals that they are not going to be the diners at the feast, but rather the entree. A similar conceit was used in an episode of a famous television series. Name, not the series, but the episode. Oh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's the Twilight Zone. And it is the Twilight Zone. It's, um... And it, it's it's a, there's some there's like an alien overlord race that we think mm-hmm. is all good and it's a cookbook mm-hmm. and it's called uh, How to Serve Man. I'll give or it to you. It is simply to serve, to man. serve man. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yes, uh, 1962 episode of the Twilight Zone. You you knew all the information about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Another one of Lewis's great works is structured as a correspondence between a junior and senior demon. For five points each, name both figures. Uh, I enjoyed that. I think I think yeah, this might be my one. favorite one. Um, that would be the screw tape letters between screw tape and wormwood. You're correct. Yes. Um, that one yeah. that one was fun. Like I I read I read The Great Divorce and the screw tape letters kind of next to each other, and they took very different tacts hmm. in those in those two different works, but there were a couple of things in the screw tape letters that really stuck with me as like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, the screw tape letter is, I, I think, is, is brilliant. Um, I haven't actually read The Great Divorce, but I probably should. It's a lot more, like, um, straightforward and on the nose. 
Yeah. So you're at 20 points going into question four. C.S. Lewis went on, I hope, to the real England on the same day as the author Aldous Huxley, author of the dystopia Brave New World. But neither was the most famous person to die on that day. I mentioned the year of his death back during the deep dive, but I don't want to make things too easy by repeating it, so ask not. <laughs> and instead, tell me what famous yeah. American died on the same day as both. Uh, that was a nice, a nice hint. I, I believe it was Thank 1963, you. so I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that it was JFK. You are correct. Uh, yeah, nice. That was a good question. I like that. Thank you. I felt like I did actually make it too easy by adding the ask not, but it was too good. I don't know. Yeah. I, I it. Um, question five. A plot point of the last battle that generated some theological controversy is the presence of the Calarmine Emeth, who served Tash in life in the Narnian paradise. C.S. Lewis's theological thinking there is arguably inclusivism, uh, which is the theological idea that Christ is able to save even those who are not aware of it. But some theologically conservative critics argue that C.S. Lewis edged closer to what otherism, which can be found in the name of a religious movement founded in the United States, um, an ism which refers to the idea that something of the truth can be found in all religions, or also that through Christ, every soul will be saved regardless of faith. Um, something of truth. I think that you said founded in the United States, so I'm, I'm going to this, go... This ism, yeah, yeah the, let, me, let me clarify. This, this ism, you find, you find the word in the religious movement founded in the United States. Um, okay. But that movement has a longer name. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go with universalism. You are correct. Because I was thinking Unitarian yes. universalism. But I know Unitarianism is older than that. Or at least wider spread than that. Yeah. I mean, I think universalism preceded C.S. Lewis. But there, there were some people who thought that his, uh, his inclusion of someone who worshipped a you know, a god other than a, another god mm -hmm. was too close to universalism Interesting. Uh, to be sort of, you know, orthodox Christian sure. doctrine. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So he, he caught some flack for seeming too universalist, perhaps, um, although I don't think he was actually universalist at all there. Mm -hmm. All right. So you have 40 points. Yeah. How many do you uh, want to Well, you bet 40 last week and got 80. So I have to bet 40 this week to try and get 80. Okay. All right, for 80 points then. In the closing chapters of The Last Battle, Diggory remarks that it was, quote, all in Plato, end quote, referring to a famous image from the Republic, which Lewis reflected with a real Narnia and real England of which the mortal plane were mere shadows. By what name is this concept from Plato best known? Uh, that would be, was this on our... This must not have been on our podcast, but it has come up recently somewhere for me. Um, but I, I knew this from, from like high school. That's the allegory of the cave. That is the allegory of the cave. Yeah. Yes, arguably. I mean, you know, that's, I mentioned that he brought Greek philosophy mm -hmm. in. It is very much all in Plato. And he uh, had the professor there to explain it in case we were missing it. Sure, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So we, uh, we both got 80 points Oof. these last two weeks. Nice work. 
and hopefully our listeners got some points as well. Yeah. So thanks, listeners, for uh, for spending your time with us. This is uh, such a joy. And thank you for listening to me nerd out about C.S. Lewis. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave us a rating or a review if you would be so kind. And check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, if you have the means and desire to give us a little bit of monetary support every month. We have uh, subscription levels. At every level, you get access to our exclusive patron content on the Patreon. And then higher levels get you things like shoutouts on the show, input into our deep dives, or, or other things like that. So be sure to check that out. And of course, you could just support us by telling your friends, asking people to, to give us a listen. That helps us out too. It sure does. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables One. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. Our website is potentpod.com, and you can email us at potentpodablescast at gmail.com. We'll be coming back to you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be.